Kia ora, Paikakiriki. Welcome to Dancing in Your Head, the show which explores the outer reaches of music. Um, I'm your guest, Dan, and we have our... Uh, no, I'm the host, and we have a guest, Tim Barlow, in the studio. Hi, Tim. Hi, Dan. How's it going? Good. Tim is, of course, a Paikakiriki resident. Lives just on the, around the corner from me on uh, Wellington Road. And um, Tim's going to talk about a bunch of projects. Um, Tim's an artist, sculptor, thinker, interesting person. Uh, has has um, particularly working with lime at the moment. I'm giving you a very brief intro here, Tim. Is thanks, that- <laughs> thanks, Dan. Yeah, it could be like a kind of lime, the limestone sessions. This one. Oh yeah, I in like a that. strange kind of way. The limestone sessions. Yeah. So we got a bunch of um, things to chat about and some music which is sort of somehow vaguely related to this theme. And um, maybe we'll just kick off, Tim, with you've got a track to kind of like start things off here. Do you want to? Oh, oh yeah. Well, um, this is. Uh, I think it's called Anatolian Folk Pop uh, Magola, uh, and it's uh, called Sunset on the Golden Horn, and um, I think it's 1970, uh, very interesting, and it sort of takes us back to the very early dawn of the first limestone use in Anatolia, uh, modern-day Turkey. Right, right, right. And so this, you mean this is where limestone was first used in uh, Well, it's where it's first been discovered in archaeological sites, in old temple sites, mm. uh, in the use of uh, uh, floors and also uh, quite a few objects, burial rites. Um, yeah, so uh, this uh, is sort of, you know, Neolithic culture. It's pre. Um, it's called pre-pottery. So limestone uh, has was burnt as almost the, one of the earliest uh, human uh, industrial processes for architectural use and um, for cultural purposes. Mm. So it's sort of uh, one of the uh, interests I have is this super long history of the use of lime and yeah culture. has your uh, has your research has she taken you to Anatolia or to Turkey to go and check out some of these no places? no no i i had planned a overseas um trip uh sometime around when covid hit mm. and i was going to do some study in the middle east and uh in northern africa of the of lime uh uh indigenous lime Techniques and use, um, but yeah, it hasn't happened. And uh, instead, oh, well. I went to Dunedin. <laughs> we can talk about we'll, that. We'll later. travel there and yeah. uh, in music. Here's um, here is Mogola, Mojola, and uh, what's the name of the track again? Uh, it, well, it, in Turkish, uh, it would be Halit. But I won't say the rest because it would be embarrassing. <laughs> but in English, that's sunset on the golden horn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
the Turkish 70s band Modjola and um, picked by Tim Barlow and they used a bunch of um, that's like 70s psychedelic prog Turkish mixed with traditional instruments like the saz and um, what else did you have? You... Oh, mandolin, uh, long neck utes, uh, yeah. some other ones oh, you might know, I don't the baglama or the kamanche Oh uh, yeah, yeah, and cool. uh, oh, and the uh, tambour. What's the t- is that a percussive instrument? Hmm. Uh, let me just have a look. <laughs> well, meanwhile, I'll, I'll I'll say my theory about limestone uh, or lime plasters and uh, their. Uh, percussive or acoustic properties because, you know, in recent years there's been quite a lot of research done around um, these ancient uh, temples and stone sites that that actually the acoustic properties were really important and that's a modern idea about uh, Stonehenge, about one of the smaller circles of rocks that they were, people hit them uh, for their sound. Sure, yeah. And um, I'm wondering with all these old temples, these Anatolian temples with the lime plaster floors, um, that this actually, with and then big stone columns and things, that this uh, sort of finished the acoustic um, resonance of the these sites. So, it, and and limestone does when you if you pound it, compact it, which is how they think the, these floors were made, layers compacted, or if you you make what is called a hydraulic. Um, lime plaster which is a very hard setting plaster mm. once it's set it's got a like ping to it really it's really quite so amazing you could create because um we're going to play some lithophone music soon which is music made by stones and like uh usually you'd find stones of the right size and maybe chip away a little bit and then arrange them in an order and play them like a xylophone. But you could, with lime, construct your, a lithophone. Tool. Yeah, well, that's right. That's a project, a project we're going to be working yeah. on together, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I reckon that is, yeah. yeah. But, you know, there was also, it wasn't that long ago, I think the mid-90s, that the Natural History Museum in Paris uh, pulled out uh, all these old stones that were 8,000 years old, etc., that were considered mm. used for crushing food and, and millet and whatever. And uh, a guy put, put these stones on a couple of um, soft sponges and hit them with a mallet and found they just had the most amazing. And that's rewritten that history with uh, this large number of stones that were in 
their collection. So yeah. these are from a French site, you mean? This, well, yeah, yeah, I don't know a lot more than that. Whether they'd pilfered them from some mm. colonial mm. <laughs> from Africa, <laughs> but yeah, so I can't say if it was from a French site. Because we have um, there's a few things to to sort of. Um, sonically and musically to explore with this zone of what we're talking about and one of them was um i mean we've both been doing little tidbits of uh, research online um for this show and um come across these uh recordings of uh in uh azerbaijan and also in africa there's sites with uh, uh there's not a specific name i don't think but um the, they've been called stone gongs which are basically rather than collecting some stone material to use for music making you go out that you find in the environment some resonant stones which i don't know if they're of a particular uh they must be of a particular quality of stone right to have a resonant resonance like that yeah and and then um some of these sites they the stones have been used for like uh, i was just reading about a site in nigeria where there'll be seven thousand years of people using this this particular stone for music making and so it's worn this quite uh gnarled stone's been worn flat in the point where it's been used to hit to make music yeah yeah yeah, that's extraordinary what they sound like also another interesting one and more directly related to limestone is the luray caverns in virginia in the u.s uh, which is considered the world's biggest musical instrument, and mm. it's limestone caverns with stalactites and things. And in the 1950s, a guy created an organ, which still can be played in there, with little solenoids uh, with hammers that hit the uh, stalactites. Um, I, the only pieces of music I could find were things like green sleeves, yeah, so I kind cheesy, of yeah. <laughs> bypassed that one. But, yeah, you might have something else. Um, yeah. yeah, I did come across the same... That same uh, thing, and I did no. I think all I found was like um, Beethoven, and um, yeah. But we could play a little bit because it is quite cool. It's it Georgia. is quite beautiful. I'll try yeah. and drag it up here as we're chatting. Georgia, um, tell me what it is that I'm searching for on YouTube here. Georgia stone, uh, oh, like L- limestone cave, Luray cabins. Oh, Luray, Luray, L U R A Y. Cavern, okay. Let's Midnight we... in the cabins. Midnight in the cabins. So they do a, um, they must have a regular recital yeah. in those cabins. Which... Okay, well, here we go. Here's, um, here's the Luray Cavins, and I'm just trying to find here a piece of music we can listen to from it. Um, let's see. Sounds like strings to me, but I think that's not right. <laughs> rewind, rewind. <laughs> and to our news hour share, something oh, here we go. Eye that may be of interest to you too. This year marks the 60th anniversary of the debut of a musical oddity, the great stalactite organ of Virginia's Luray Caverns. News hour recently got a behind-the-scenes look at this one-of-a-kind instrument from those who know it best. Cavern historian John Schaefer starts us off. Great Caverns is home to the largest musical instrument in the world, the great stalactite organ, and it plays the stalactites. 
The organ was created by Leland W. Sprinkle. Mr. Sprinkle toured the caverns in 1954 with his young son. And at that time, uh, the guides would tap stalactites to show that the different sizes gave off different tones. What he did was take rubber mallets and the concept of an organ and put it all together into an instrument. I'm Larry Moyer. I am operations manager for the Great Stalactite Organ. You're actually standing inside the organ as it plays because the stalactites cover over three and a half acres around us. Basically, we call it like a player-type piano. So the sheet of plastic as your song and as the drum rotates, metal brushes fall into contact through holes in the plastic and sends the notes out. And on occasion, we will have an organist present. A pipe organ produces its sounds by forcing air through columns. What we're doing here is we're actually playing a 37-note percussion instrument. My name is Otto Pelborth. I play the organ here at Luray Caverns. And I've been playing pipe organs now for probably close to 30 years. It's very settling, very soothing. I just have a chance just to stop and let everything go quiet and make music. And that's what makes it the nicest thing. A room like this lends itself more toward the more peaceful things like Moonlight Sonata or some of the Bach preludes. The stalagpipe organ is a totally unique instrument unto itself. And because of that, you can just hear something that is totally natural and totally special. It can't be duplicated. So that's the um, a Georgian uh, underground stalactite organ, which we were just saying is it's a classic sort of disrespecting nature of um, for uh, if you have a look on that video, you can see some of the stalactites. I mean, it's filed down to <laughs> yeah. They've actually been trimmed. The tips <laughs> off some of them have been cut off. They're like little stumps. Well, that's a bit of it sort of exaggeration, but yeah, they've been tuned. Getting this amazing natural phenomenon to fit in with, uh, you know, 19th century uh, classical music tuning, uh, it just seems a bit strange to me. But um, we, we can sort of, we can offer another um, version of this, which is what we are talking about before, which are these um, big stones in Azerbaijan. I'm not sure, Tim, if you want to introduce what's going on in this uh, clip. But I I've, I've saw it very quickly, but um, these are like um, large stones, really large, like some of them as big as a car, ranging down to, um, uh, you know, the size of a crate. And they're, they're over a, a hillside out in the, the fields of Azerbaijan, just where uh, shepherds take their flocks of sheep and things. And this guy is like um, going to several different rocks on this hillside uh, playing them with other stones so he's tapping and like you were describing before um, there's all these worn places that actually have been worn out into like a keyboard uh, well you know uh, like a flattened area mm. so they can sort of so it suits their playing um, 
And yeah, looks like they've been played for thousands of years. He called them, uh, these are magical rocks and they play to summon spirits. So they're obviously very connected uh, with the spiritual world too. And um, there's some, uh, it's a little documentary with, it's about five minutes long and with a bit of talk in Azerbaijani, which I might just uh, do a quick translation because I'm very fluent in Azerbaijani. You didn't know this about me as it goes along so um, listeners can understand what's happening. Here we go. This is Lithophones of Gobustan. Music set in stone. This tambourine stone is called Galvadesh. Produces a sound like a tambourine. Or the cathedral bell, which is, has a clearer chime. This sound of the stone cleanses the environment and the humans. It was, in the days of old, it was used to uh, heal disease and also used for trapping spirits. The sound of the stone called spirits from all over the mountain area and it can send people into a trance. Основа, прародитель всех именно ударных инструментов. The stone is the first of all percussion instruments. Камень, гавалдаш. This is a magic stone called гавалдаш. А вон там уже находятся основные именно ритуальные места, где наскальные рисунки.
So that's um, in Azerbaijan, these amazing stone instruments in the landscape there. Um, and just as a, a, as a kind of, we'll just do a real quick survey of a couple of different uh, cultures that use stone instruments, lithophones. So here's um, in Vietnam, there's a tradition of uh, stone music lithophones. And this is the music of the Monga ethnicity. And uh, here's a quick uh, recording of a stone, um, well, remember, lithophone. So that's a uh, lithophone there in Vietnam, which is amazing, beautiful sounding instrument. And then just as a last little um, bit of this lithophone buzz, here's a uh, bit in Kudu, um, which is a place in Nigeria in Jigawa State. And these are actually the um, more like the Azerbaijani um, stones out of in the environment. These aren't small stones that someone's taken home. These are people who've gone to where big resonant stones are. And here's a couple of guys playing these stones and a bit in kudu.
So that's a very, very old instrument, thousands and thousands of year old rock gong in Nigeria there. And um, yeah, so fantastic stuff. Tim, getting back to limestone. Yeah. And um, we were just saying how, uh, you know, you were describing the kind of um, alchemical. Um, um, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's always been a certain amount of magic uh, around the transformation of limestone, and that's what's put some of these very early Anatolian temples are considered. That's what was also so important with the floor, that, that it was a huge amount of work to, to process it. How do and, you um, process limestone? Well, it has to be burnt. So you mine it out of the ground. You mine the limestone and then it's burnt in kilns. And this is why the process of making lime mortars and plasters and all that seems to have been simultaneously discovered by many, many of the world's cultures because they'd you know, if you left a limestone rock by the side of a fire that was burning overnight, it might uh, turn into quicklime. So it loses its CO2 and becomes calcium oxide, highly reactive, and then you need to add water back to it and you make up a lime putty or paste or plaster. Uh, or so you mean when it burns it becomes dust-like? No, it's still like a rock. And you've got to smash it up to use it. Yeah, then, you pa- then it's pa- yeah, pounded to yeah. powder it up. Um, so it's quite a lot of work, and um, I guess that was part of, uh, my my project um, last year uh, went down to be an artist in residence in Dunedin and I'd been sort of playing around with lime plaster for years but um, I really wanted to try and build something with it and we, we tried to do our own lime burn on this farm uh, in North Canterbury with North Canterbury limestone. Um, and some of that was partially successful, but yeah, it's quite a lot of hard work, hot work. You know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. What so was that like? You, you, um, we had to, literally like an incinerator. Well, you can, the- you know, there, there's still lime kilns around from the early colonists in New Zealand. You can see them in around Dunedin. There's quite a few of them, so they're quite evident still. Mm. Um, and they were built close to the source of lime. There's also quite an, an, something I found interesting because it's like you can do it yourself. We don't have to rely on big industry or whatever. And also, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of issues with the production of of uh, cement, you know, which is the modern version of what had been used for these thousands of years, which mm. was lime. Um, yeah. So does cement use lime? The material. Yes, it does. It, it uses lime um, and clay, and some other additives. Uh, other bits and bobs are put in there, and it's burnt at a much higher temperature than mm. lime, um, and is also like failing <laughs> a lot. It fails. The advantage a lot. <laughs> is it's much hard, harder, but yeah. it doesn't have the. Breathable or yeah, yeah, malleable it's, qualities. That's right. It, it doesn't. It's not so flexible. Mm. Um, so, say you used uh, lime on a, a rock wall, it can settle, and you it may not even crack, or may get very small cracks, and then the cracks can also self heal. So water gets in there, um, and the breathability means, of course, that you can use it on. Uh, it's used for natural building materials. So the natural building industry in New Zealand uses it on hay bale houses, and there's a renate and. Um, 
like hempcrete houses. There's actually a renaissance of these houses going on because our houses aren't so healthy, we've discovered. Mm. <laughs> they don't breathe, you know. So that's another advantage of it. It also reabsorbs a lot more CO2 than cement, which is so dense and hard it does it, it it doesn't really reabsorb much of the co2 that was released so um, but you couldn't build um, motorway bridges out of lime it's just not well they built the pantheon which is the world's largest unreinforced dome in rome so that's i think what 48 maybe 50 meters uh, you know that that that's all lime that's um roman concrete so yeah the Romans were famous for their Roman concrete, their aqueducts they built. But, yeah, they're a very different shape. They're not full of steel, but the steel can be a problem. That's rusting in a lot of True, yeah. structures. Mm. Um, so its flexibility also means there's still standing 2,000-year-old um, Roman wharves around the, all around the coast of Italy. Right. It's considered the most durable uh, human-made material I guess that's known mm. um, because it's been around for so long. And well, surely there's still tons of cultures building in Lyme. Yeah, and tons of, tons of traditional work still going on, and not just these big Western um, cultures like the Greeks and Ro Romans. But, yeah, of course, like it's just standard, still used, and many, mm -hmm. you know, uh, indigenous cultures Asia and Africa, and yeah. Tell us about a bit more about the um, the lime burners. Lime oh, so burners. the lime burners. Yeah, well, that was that came out of this art residency, and um, I was trying to spread the lime love, get people <laughs> interested, <laughs> other artists mm. basically, and I did end up working with about fifteen other artists, and it was a range of artists too, quite a few ceramic artists who were really. Um, uh, facing this issue for them of their gas kilns running out of gas in a few years, and they're like, "Well, maybe we could, you, you know, make, you know, go the pre-pottery way, mm. <laughs> use limestone to make vessels and things." Um, and then there were there was like fresco artist who knew fresco technique. She'd studied it in London, um, which is also, you know, that's like this. Uh, also uses lime putty, and you paint. Uh, a lime water mixed with the pigment into it and stuccos and people were trying all this stuff out and um, it was a big experimentation so exercise. So this is down in Dunedin. This in is, Dunedin um... and we found the perfect site which was the Dunedin Gasworks Museum which is um, and all these old steam engines that was, you know, it was basically the biggest carbon polluting like <laughs> um, industry, you know, it was a uh, hundred closed didn't close down to the late eighties. Have been going since Victorian times, pumping gas. Anyway, they turned it into a museum. It's more a It's a real nice community site, um, and it's a place you could make a mess. So we could mix, uh, do th what's called hot mixes on site, which it, you know it's such an exothermic reaction. It bubbles, and so we had a whole lot of demonstrations, workshops, an exhibition. Um, over the two week period, and um, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. But that industrial um, site, it was a bit like okay, we need to find a new way of of production in the world. Basically, industrial 
production has failed us, let's face it. <laughs> well, it seems so to me. And so one of my sort of objectives is like, okay, well, people did it, humans did it this way for tens of thousands of years, and many cultures still use it. So maybe that's better than our modern cements and all this. So that was sort of one of the premises of that. Um, but the connection to industrial culture is also mm-hmm. why I thought it was um, interesting to think about some industrial Music. Well, I've got so, a little um, recording here of the Dunedin Gasworks, um, oh some of the machines in operation. We could listen for a... They don't really sound... You were saying that you were really surprised these huge machines are really, really quiet. Uh, yeah, the day they had it operating when I was there, um, they cranked them all up, and I was expecting this thunderous, hellish vision, <laughs> Dante's hell, you know, that sort of... Crank. But they were all just like... <laughs> yeah, very we can, silent and it's quite beautiful. So this recording is from the museum. Obviously, you can hear people talking louder than the actual machines, but you can hear some of the machinery in the background here. I think that in, indicates, though, just how quiet they were. And um, the technicians that work on those machines, I was saying to them, God, these are so silent. Can't hear a thing. And uh, this guy said, Oh, yes, you can. <laughs> oh, yeah, that one's really squeaky. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, pre-industrial lime in, the, in this big industrial gas works. But, and then um, bringing us to Throb and Gristle. Um, oh, yeah, well, I mean, you, you could probably talk about Throb and <laughs> Gristle all day. It's such an interesting band. But it does have, came out of an art performance group and... Um, I guess my background is more visual arts than music. Um, well, well, I know they're intimately connected, and these guys actually really indicate that. They had an art performance group called Coom, or Cum Transmission, from the late 60s that were highly controversial, um, dealt with issues around pornography and um, sexuality, etc. Um, but, yeah, in the, uh, maybe the mid-70s, um, they, these artists like Cosi Fanny Tutti and um, what's his name? Uh, crazy name. Um, Genesis P. Orridge. <laughs> Genesis <laughs> Porridge. Um, anyway, they set up Throb and Gristle, often considered the, f- the first or seminal industrial band. I think they were in Hull in Eng- UK. Mm. Yeah. And, well, this song, um, What a Day, uh, it's one of their sort of anthems I think yeah cool right here we go throb and gristle Oh, my God. 
Fantastic, Throb and Gristle, British industrial band. Um, what a day! Was a track chosen by our guest Tim Barlow um, around this sort of idea of well, we're talking about lime really, but then going sideways into industry and uh, industrial music. And yeah, well, it's it, they're all it's connected, isn't it? The culture, production, uh, the music—they're um, all intimately 
linked. Maybe we need to relink them a bit more <laughs> rather than it all being kept separate. Uh, separate. Um, yeah, and tell us about – yeah, totally, not to um, <laughs> dismiss yes, your yeah. point. <laughs> My theory. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, I uh, – and I guess um, – well, I, that's a whole. Um, there's a um, there's a year long conversation, yeah, is it really? Yeah, but um, yeah. uh, there's a. Um, I did. I, in uh, we won't play it, but in um, dragging out some tracks for this show, I did get into this idea of oh, mining lime, ah, and then yeah, I was looking yeah. into like miners' yeah. songs, and um, oh, I actually yeah, picked yeah. out some um, just because it was some Mediterranean and um, in the sort of Italy Greek kind of world. I, um, there was this uh, Alan Lomax recording. Alan Lomax is a um, uh, fantastic f- music uh, field recordist from the States, but he did various trips around Europe as well and recorded in Sicily these um, this, uh, these miners' songs oh, in, on brilliant, Sicily, brilliant. which is really yeah. fantastic. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, I was trying to find lime burners' songs, and um, in the end, I, I yeah, I found a, a very famous lime burner who a music ecologist or ethnomusicologist had in the mid-19th century recorded all his lime-burning songs, and they were fascinating songs. And um, one of them uh, had the was the uh, gave the words for steel eye steel steel eye span. Used the words from one of those songs, but yeah, I couldn't actually find any music. So I'm pleased you have because the mining connection is it's. It's tricky with limestone because you're still mining a material too and you're mining a material which is a fossil fuel and Mm. burning it. You're burning fossil – so – And I guess if that was done en masse in the the scale of construction – I mean concrete and um, uh, making it may – I'm not sure what the environmental um, problems with that would be potentially. I don't know. Well – I mean, some of the environmental theories um, say that actually we humans started altering the planet around Neolithic times, um, more from agriculture, deforestation mm. than burning lime. But um, yeah, it's it's a tricky one when you when you're thinking of how do we try and find a new way to build the world, which is actually on a, a mad um, exponential curve upwards in terms of concrete use. You know, a new New York City being built every thirty days up for the next twenty. You know, humans are just on this, mad, mm. you know, productive burst. So, it, yeah, in a way, it's like, yeah, maybe we m- need to build low rise and with lime. Is your um, I mean, I know you're interested in lime as the material, but also this idea of like construction and alternative. Materials is that taking you down? I don't know. Like I'm just thinking also in terms of a musical sonic relationship, like bamboo, for instance. There's this whole world of like bamboo construction and yeah. material, and also it's an incredible uh, resource for the musical instruments. From my point of view, right? It's really interesting. Yeah. Well, it, it does, especially the because mi- I think the magic thing um, for construction, say, um, is really the use of the natural materials like. Um, so I was thinking like sculptures, I've been trying this out, sculptures that are made using hay that's shaped, you know, so rather than just a square hay bale home, you shape it and then plaster over it. And, um, uh, yeah, and actually, yeah, lots of different materials. Uh, I really like the idea of using hemp 
lime and hemp crete, and um, that's actually considered carbon negative because you're burying all the carbon from the hemp, and hemp's such a good um, material to grow, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of its uh, environmental impacts. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am always thinking of its of, of how, I guess, it fits into a better way of producing and production and working together. And it's pretty important for me. And Denise, totally. Yeah, know, yeah, which to, is a big um, yeah. part of your um, yeah. work as an artist is this idea of um, communal work or like a community well, engagement yes projects and no. And stuff. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've, always, I've done a lot of sort of um, community-based projects uh, or collaborative projects. Um, they can also be really tricky though too. But, yeah, yeah, I, I think um, – yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, could talk for hours about that. I did my <laughs> PhD in it, so I don't want to think about it anymore. <laughs> um, we've got a couple of tracks. If we have time, we could play one or maybe two. Um, there's a recording here from uh, from Hamilton, which you pulled out. Oh yeah, which um, yeah, the Wild Sonic Blooms, which yeah. is a collaboration between um, some wonderful Hamilton artists. Uh, uh, artists like Jeremy, Ma- uh, Jeremy Mayle, Kent McPherson, Horomona Horo, Hako and Reuben uh, Bradley, Megan Rog- Rogerson-Berry. And um, they did that in 2015. I'm thinking the Hamilton connection is interesting. And we've been talking about how the sound is connected to place and uh, sight and materials through the lithostones. And so it's, I'm thinking of uh, wondering whether I could do another lime burners up around Hamilton, is where, that- of course, there's big sources of limestone, the Waitomo, right. and, mm. and there's big mining industry there too. So I have um, been... Uh, thinking about going there, and the, these guys—I don't know if you'd call them industrial or electronica or um, found sounds—they're really there's some cool stuff going on there, though. Well, you'd know more in terms of describing it. This is a Rattle Records release. Um, yeah, let's have a listen.
That was a group called Wild Sonic Blooms. I'll just play in the background while we kind of wrap up. This is a um, something maybe you'd, I don't know why you chose this one, Tom. Oh, well, yeah, this was uh, from the Sound of Siam uh, CD. <clears throat> That's really Lok Thong and uh, Mo Lam music. That's Northeast Thai Isan culture. Uh, famously... Uh, poor northeast, and a lot of the, them came to work in Bangkok and during the 60s. Um, it was something of a revolution of the music. Um, and this particular one, Look, Look, Thong, uh, Look Krong, is the city version of Look Thong, and um, it's almost like a precursor to punk. The, the um, guys yelling out, I love you, I love you, I really love you, and it, it's actually confrontational and repetitive, and it's almost like there's an industrial element to this, but going, and it just makes you realise the so-called throbbing gristle first industrial band, etc. <laughs> you know, it's Music history doesn't work like that. I think this is the late 60s. So Cool. Yeah. We'll go out on this. And uh, thanks so much, Tim. It's been a great yeah, pleasure. Yeah, thank, thanks for um, being uh, inviting me. It's been cool. a lot of fun. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah.